Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, that we can meet uh, together, even this afternoon. Uh, Lord, we pray now that as we look at your word, uh, that you might speak clearly to us, that we might walk out of here this afternoon, having heard your voice, being transformed by the scriptures, uh, seeing that there is hope for our future because of what you've done for us in Jesus. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen. Now, I've got a photo here. Um, I'm sure you've seen this iconic photo before. This photo taken in 1932, it's called Lunch Atop a Skyscraper. It's New York City during the Great Depression. And it is 11 construction workers sitting down, having their lunch 250 metres above the ground. You've, I'm sure you've seen it before. It's kind of an iconic New York image. And this photo here, there is only one authentic print from the original negative that exists in the world. There's only one real print. Every other, every other copy you've seen is like a copy of a copy or a copy of a copy of a copy. There is only one authentic print from the original negative. And you're never likely to see another authentic print ever again. Now, the reason is, is because the negative is stored in a vault inside a limestone cave in a mountain in Pennsylvania. And it's stored there, you know, for like safekeeping. That's the sort of thing that people do until one day. One of the workers in the archives there uh, in 1996 was, was carrying the negative, which is a, a piece of glass, uh, and they dropped it on the concrete floor. It broke into five pieces. They managed to lose one of the corners. I've got a picture of the negative as it, as it is now. They managed to lose one of the corners. I don't know where they lost it, uh, but they managed to do that. Now, this, it, it can't be glued back together. No sticky tape is going to kind of get it, get it into a kind of right state so the boss isn't going to notice. This precious negative is now gone for good, really. Uh, a clumsy employee managed to break something that was so precious, something that was not replaceable. Now, in the book of Daniel, it's the 6th century BC. The people of God are in exile. Their nation has been destroyed. Everything dear to them has been taken away. They're living in a foreign land far from their home. And the reason they are there is because they broke something precious. They broke something really important. Uh, we read in the scriptures the thing they broke was a thing called the covenant. Uh, now, the covenant is the, the word that the, uh, the Bible uses uh, to describe the special relationship between God and his people, a special relationship that is based on a promise. Uh, the relationship it began back with, Mo, with Abraham, and it runs right the way through the Old Testament. And a covenant is really a two-way street. It works like this. It's, God promises, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so God's side of the covenant promise is uh, he promises to rescue them, he promises to protect them, he promises to teach them, to nurture them, to love them, and to bless them as his people. And the people's side of the covenant, of the promise, is they promise to treat God as God, to give him glory and thanks and honour and to listen to him and to do what he says. They, they promise to let God be their God and no other God be their God. On one level, the covenant is very simple. I'll be your God, and you treat me as your God. So how does that covenant go? Well, uh, God totally keeps his end of the bargain, but the people, well, they were pretty rubbish at keeping their promise. They didn't let God be God. They break this precious covenant, and they break it over and over and over again. And it's not like they were just a kind of clumsy archive worker who dropped it on the concrete floor. Time and time again, God's people keep breaking their promise. They reject God's law. They ignore his prophets. 
They, they simply refuse over and over and over again to let God be their God. And the consequences for breaking this covenant, for breaking this special relationship, is that God takes away their blessing. He removes their privileged position as his chosen people. And ultimately, it materializes in the form of a foreign army, Babylon, who come and destroy God's city and take, all of, uh, take a, a chunk of God's people off into captivity. They broke something precious. And now they're reaping the consequences. And here's where we find our old mate Daniel. Uh, for Daniel and his fellow exiles living in Babylon, they are living, uh, they are living out, the, the, the exper- they are experiencing the consequences of breaking that precious covenant. And as they live in Babylon, and they, they are sitting there and, and they're asking two big questions. They had two burning questions. The first question is, after the exile, what's next? If they get to return home to Jerusalem, what is the future of God's people? After the exile, what next? And the second burning question is, if this precious covenant has been broken, what hope is there for God's rebellious people? Is there a possibility of a second chance? What hope is there that this isn't going to just happen over and over and over again? Now, um, we're not sitting in 6th century Babylon, um, you know, uh, we've, but we've got skin in the game here too. You see, these questions actually do matter for us. We don't just kind of look on as interested outsiders, but these, these questions are important for us too. You see, we too are rebels against the holy God. We too hear God's word and we don't do what it says. Even those of us who follow Jesus, there's plenty of times where we don't let God be God. So what hope is there for people like us? Is there any hope that the future will be any different for us? Is there any possibility people like us might have a second chance? Well, let's see what Daniel's chapter 8 and 9 have to say. Uh, now, uh, Daniel chapter 8, we didn't read it. Uh, you can go read it later. I'll give you a bit of a summary. Um, but uh, Daniel chapter 8 is where we uh, get the answer to our first question. After the exile, what next? Uh, what's next for God's people? Uh, chapter 8 is pretty simple, but it's also very weird. Uh, Daniel is given a vision, uh, and then he's given an interpretation of the vision. That's the simple bit. Uh, the, the very weird bit is the vision. Uh, so the vision happens during the reign of the last king of Babylon, King Belshazzar. So we've kind of gone back in time a little bit from uh, chapter 7 uh, and, and chapter 6. Uh, so Belshazzar, he's the guy in chapter 5 who saw the writing on the wall and kind of pooed his pants. Uh, uh, that's, that's when Daniel receives this vision. Uh, and in this vision, Daniel is transported. He's transported to a place called Susa. And as Daniel's kind of in this place, in the vision in Susa, and wondering what he's doing hundreds of kilometers away, things get even more weird. Uh, there's a ram that comes from the east. And then there's this kind of unicorn, shaggy goat that comes from the west. And then a bunch of funky things happen with horns. And then the action finally settles on one little particularly nasty horn. And this little horn unleashes on God's people. If you've got a Bible there, look at chapter 8, verse 9. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 9. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of heaven and threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. 
Uh, now this horrible little horn, it attacks the beautiful land, presumably Israel. It attacks God, it attacks God's people, and it even says it attacks truth itself. And Daniel's vision, it goes on for 2,300 evenings and mornings, that's a few years, and then it's all over and the vision comes to an end. Makes perfect sense, right? We all know what's going on. Oh, well, Daniel doesn't have to guess as to what it means because Daniel's actually given an interpretation. And again, like we've looked at the book of Daniel, I think we're not to press the details of this vision beyond the interpretation that's given to Daniel. The interpretation that's given to Daniel is, is all we need to know about what's going on in this vision. Uh, see, the angel, the messenger Gabriel, turns up and he tells Daniel that this is a vision about what's going to happen in the next few hundred years. And there are four things to see. First, God's people will have to put up with new overlords, the Medes and the Persians. Uh, you know, they're the ones who, in chapter 5, came uh, and uh, kind of uh, killed Belshazzar and took over the Babylonian Empire. Uh, they're the oddly horned ram in verse 20. The second thing is, uh, then they'll have to put up with a Greek king. That's the shaggy goat in verse 21. Uh, it turns out this is kind of likely to be Alexander the Great. Alexander went on a rampage from Greece, flattening everything in his wake all the way over to India. And then after him, third, the third thing is, uh, God warns that they'll have to cope with four more like him. After Alexander's death, his, his, his empire was split between his four leading generals. And these are the little horns. Uh, although verse 22 says that none of them are going to be quite as bad as their boss. Uh, but the problems aren't over for God's people at this point. In fact, they get much worse. See, the fourth thing to see is that after several re regime changes later, a particularly brutal ruler will turn up. In chapter 8, verse 24, we see that he is a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue. Uh, now, many people think this is a fair description of a, of a second century king called Antiochus Epiphanes, a guy who was a, a nasty piece of work. He murdered his brother and he's murdered his 10-year-old nephew to make sure that he could be the one who sits on the throne. Not a nice man. Uh, he didn't really like the Jewish people either uh, or their God. He seemed to kind of go out of his way to antagonize them. Uh, in verse 25, it sums it up like this. It says, he will cause deceit to, to prosper. And he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. You see, this horrible little horn has it in for God's people. Antiochus would actually, in fact, go on to set up an altar for Zeus inside the Jerusalem temple. And on that altar to Zeus inside the Jerusalem temple, he would sacrifice a pig, which doesn't go down particularly well for the Jews, does it? Now, we don't need to stress the details here, but in amongst this, there is an awful picture that answers the first question we have. After the exile, what next? Well, the answer that comes back is tragically much more of the same. Tragically much more of the same. See, the details of chapter 8, they speak of a time after the exile. They assume the exile will be over, which is good news, but the return, tragically, it's only going to be to... You know, return long enough to get pummeled again and again and again. You see, the vision in chapter 8, it tells Daniel that things aren't going to be getting better anytime soon. Sure, Babylon will come and go, Persia will come and go, Greece will come and go, this horrible little horn will come and go, the exile will end, but things won't really get better for God's promise-breaking people. And it's no surprise that Daniel finds this a little bit depressing. Uh, look at the end of chapter 8. 
in verse 27, uh, it says this, verse 27, it says, I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. You see, Daniel has just seen what's going to happen for the next 350 years to God's people. And tragically, nothing is going to change. Uh, as a Wallaby supporter, I know how he feels. They are stuck on this treadmill of endless defeat and disappointment, and there is actually no hope in the future that things are going to be any better. So it's no wonder that Daniel kind of rolls over and he pulls the bed covers over his head. He takes a few mental health days from work and just wallows in it. He's got his answer. The exile will end, but it won't fix the problem. The exile will end, but it won't mean that life returns to normal. Uh, quite a few years ago, there was this movie called Beaconsfield. It was an Australian movie. Uh, it's the story of two miners who were rescued after being trapped underground for a fortnight. Uh, one critic said it's the, the most fun you can have watching two fat blokes stuck in a hole. Uh, <laughs> but for these guys, as they're there in the hole in the ground, as they're two weeks there, the days wore on, the rescue came closer and closer and closer, and it got to the point where they literally could see the light at the end of the tunnel, like Daniel and his friends in exile. But even once they were rescued, life couldn't return to normal. Life wouldn't return to normal. Uh, they came out of the mine and they couldn't just go back to living life the way they had lived it before. They were international celebrities. The mine was closed down. Uh, everything had changed. And as the exiles look forward to return to Jerusalem, life won't be returning to normal. Uh, the sad story of Daniel chapter 8 is that they can expect to be crushed and humiliated again and again and again. The reason is because the exile hasn't fixed the problem. That precious covenant, that precious relationship between God and his people, it is still broken. And that leads us to our second question. If the exile hasn't fixed the problem, what hope is there for God's rebellious people? If they're going to be stuck in this cycle of being battered after king, after king, after king, what hope is there? We get a glimpse of this in chapter 9. Uh, now, that first reading we had was from the prophet Jeremiah. Um, it was a letter sent uh, by the prophet to the exiles in Babylon. Uh, and here in Daniel chapter 9, uh, Daniel is reading Jeremiah's letter. How cool is that? Uh, he, and he reads Jeremiah's letter and he can see that the end of the exile is approaching. Uh, so chapter 9 verse 2. Uh, chapter 9, verse 2, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures, that is Jeremiah's letter, according to the word of the Lord given to the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Now, Daniel's there, and he's kind of been checking off his calendar as he goes, and, and the end of the exile is just around the corner. But Daniel knows that the end of the exile isn't the end of the hard times for God's people. The situation's not going to improve they're going to return from exile. That's the same promise-breaking, rebellious people. So what hope is there for them? Well, as we read Daniel's prayer, we can see, we can glimpse the solution. The hope for God's people, it's not going to be found in them, but it can only be found in God. So Daniel asks God for a solution a solution to all of their promise-breaking, all of their failure, all of their disappointment. Essentially what Daniel does is Daniel asks God to fix the covenant. 
he asks them to fix the covenant. It begins with confession that they have failed to keep their part of the covenant. He confesses to God that they themselves, on their own, they cannot fix the problem. Now have a look there at verse 4. Uh, chapter 9, verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Verse 5. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. You see, Daniel confesses to God that even though he has kept his side of the bargain, even though he is the God who has kept his covenant of love, they, the people, they have utterly failed in keeping their side. They have been wicked. They have rebelled. They have turned away from God's word. Essentially, they have failed at letting God be God. And Daniel knows that they're only going to make the same mistake over and over again. And so all he can do, the only hope that he has, is to confess their failure and appeal to God's mercy. Now we see in verse 9 that Daniel knows the character of God. He says there in verse 9, The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. And knowing the character of God, Daniel makes his appeal. Verse 17, have a look there. Now our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make this request of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Daniel knows that his God is a God who, who shows favour and kindness even when it isn't deserved. And Daniel knows that his God is a God who hears the prayers and petitions of his people. And so Daniel isn't just asking for them to return home and for things to go back to normal. No, Daniel wants God to fix the broken covenant. He wants to fix these broken people. He wants God to have mercy on them and fix their problem of not letting God be God. And the good news is, is that God hears Daniel's prayer. And God promises that something better is coming. Uh, now, Daniel doesn't have to wait very long for an answer. Uh, it's kind of like one of those times where you, have you ever had that moment where you, you dial a number and the person at the other end picks up the phone and answers before it's had a chance to ring. Have you ever had that moment? Uh, it creeps me out every time. You kind of, like, you press the thing and then someone's there going, hello? And you're like, what? Uh, uh, anyway, it, it's, it's as though God's waiting by the phone. It's as though his hand is hovering over the receiver. He's just waiting there for his people to return back to him, to call out to him for mercy, he, to call out for the mercy that he's, he's waiting, he's longing, he's willing to give. Have a look there in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord, my God, for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. You see, while Daniel is still praying, Gabriel comes and brings news to him that God has heard and God has answered his prayer. Something better is coming, Daniel. And we see this in verse 24. Uh, verse 24, 77 is a decreed for your people and your holy city. And here it is, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, 
to atone for wickedness and to bring everlasting righteousness. Uh, Now, if all the sevens and seven times seven and 77s or whatever was a little bit confusing for you as we read it, uh, that's okay. You're in good company. Uh, It's generally agreed that verses 24 to 27 are the most difficult parts of the book of Daniel to understand. And there's some pretty tricky stuff in Daniel. So that says a bit. Um, People uh, really struggle uh, to get their heads around what's going on in the original languages. And then even then, once they have worked that out, then to work out what it means. Uh, so if anyone ever comes to you and I've, go, like, I've worked out verse, uh, Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 to 27, I've worked it out, I know exactly what it means, and just be a little bit sceptical. Uh, uh, it's really tricky. Um, but what we can see here, we can see something. We can see here that God is going to deal with the root of our issue. That God is actually going to go to the heart of the problem. You see, God is promising Daniel that there will be an end to sin. There will be atonement for wickedness. He is promising Daniel that there will be a time where there will be everlasting righteousness for God's people. Gabriel is promising that a new way of relating to God is coming. A new way of relating to God is coming and it will deal with the people and their promise breaking once and for all. And so here uh, in in Daniel chapter 9, we get a glimpse, just a small glimpse, but we get a glimpse of God's new covenant, a better covenant. A new covenant is coming. And it's coming where? Well, where do we see an end to sin? Who do we see as the one who atones for wickedness? Who is the person who brings everlasting righteousness? Well, it's not us, is it? It's pointing to Jesus, isn't it? I mean, who else could it be? Uh, The book of Hebrews in the New Testament, it joins the dots more clearly for us. It says this in Hebrews uh, chapter 8, verse 8. It says, But God found fault with the people and said, There is a time coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then in verse 10, uh, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. You see, God is promising that a day would come when he would hit the reset button on his relationship with his people where he would make a covenant that transformed them from the inside out, a covenant that would deal with their promise-breaking, that they would deal with their problem, that they wouldn't let God be God. And it was a covenant that was based on God's mercy. And this is what Daniel was praying for, isn't it? This is the only hope for God's rebellious people. And this promise, it's been fulfilled once and for all, only in Jesus which means this is our hope too. Now, I know Daniel's confession there. He could be writing that about me. Or probably you too. Verse 5, we have sinned and done wrong. We have, done, we have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned from your commands and laws. Does that sound like anyone you know? Yeah, it's the man in the mirror, isn't it? Which means that our only hope as rebellious people, our only hope is the grace and mercy of God. 
our only hope for the future, our only hope for that anything will be different is in a covenant that puts an end to sin, that atones for wickedness, that brings everlasting righteousness. Our only hope is in the covenant, the new covenant brought by Jesus. A covenant, a relationship where faithfulness and obedience to God, that, that, a faithfulness and obedience that God requires, it is supplied for us by Jesus through his death on the cross. And when we press into the New Testament, we start to see the implications of this new covenant for us. We start to see how this, this new covenant, this new understanding of, of how we can relate to God, how it ought to radically transform how we see ourselves. See, if we are people who have come to God on the basis of this new covenant, the one that is hinted here in Daniel chapter 9, if we have handed our lives over to Jesus, there is hope for rebellious people like you and me. There is hope for us because God has, has reached in and he has broken the, the cycle of sin and guilt and shame. And so no matter how far, how far you have failed in the past, no matter how kind of far short you might fall today, no matter how foolish you might live in the future, if you trust in Jesus on the basis of this new covenant, then God has dealt with your sin. He has put an end to it. God has atoned for it. He has paid for it in Jesus. And God is gifting you in Christ everlasting righteousness. And in the New Testament, we see that there are three profound truths that flow out from this. Three realities. If you trust in Jesus, these are true about you. And if you come to God based on Jesus' new covenant, then you are a new person. Then you are being made to be like Jesus. And you one day will be made perfect. So you are a new person. Your past no longer defines you if you trust in Jesus. Has someone said something particularly horrible to you in the past? Something that kind of, they said it and you've just never been able to put it behind. I know some of us can live with this sort of stuff for years, decades. You're ugly. You'll never amount to anything. I can't believe how stupid you are. I don't and I never will love you. Did you make that same mistake again? You really are hopeless. I don't think I can ever forgive you. Well, despite the hurtful things that have been said to you, if you trust in Jesus, if you're part of the new covenant that God has made with his people, you can stand tall and say, I am a new person in Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes this. He writes, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Which means you are no longer defined by your sin or your failure or your relationship status or your job. You are now defined only by Jesus. Because of this new covenant, it has dealt with our failure and our rebellion. And because of that, you are a new person. You are a new creation in Christ. And you are being made to be more like him, more like Jesus. Is there an area of your life where you continue to struggle? You've tried and you've tried and you've tried and you just can't root out that secret sin, that, that niggling doubt, that lapse in discipline or concentration. Maybe you've resigned yourself to the fact that I'll just never get on top of this thing. I'll never change. 
Well, despite your failings, if you're part of the new covenant in Christ, you can say, I am being made like Jesus. Again, in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this. He writes, uh, And we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We're being transformed into his likeness. You see, although sin and failure may define our past, we are on an upward trajectory to be more like Jesus. And in God's mercy, he is gradually changing us by his spirit to be more like his son. Now, sometimes, yeah, sometimes that change feels like a snail's pace. But if you have handed control of your life over to God, he will make you more like his son, Jesus, through the power of his Holy Spirit. And one day, you will be made perfect. You will be made perfect. Do you worry that you'll never really amount to much? Are there goals and hopes and dreams in your life that you fear that you'll never achieve? I don't know, maybe you're waiting for Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright to come along. Maybe your longing for a family hasn't materialized the way you hoped. Maybe your career or your retirement uh, or your family or, or just your, your whole life package doesn't look uh, like what you had hoped it would be. Well, despite our disappointments, despite our frustrations, if we come to God, if we, if we come appealing for his mercy, you can say, I will be made perfect. The Apostle John wrote this. He wrote, Dear friends, we are now children of God, and what will be has not yet been made known. But when it is made known, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. See, even though I still have this magnificent capacity to stuff things up, and we all do, do not be disappointed. God is not finished with you. His word promises that he will make you perfect in the end. And that perfection, it will eclipse all of life's disappointments. They'll all pale into insignificance. And so as Daniel wondered, after the exile, what next? Will things get better? The answer is, things will be better, but not in returning to the land, not by rebuilding the temple. Things will only get better through Jesus. And as Daniel asked, what hope is there for God's rebellious people? The answer is, there is only hope in God's mercy shown to us in Jesus. Because he is the one who brings a new covenant that deals with all of our promise breaking. And so if we come to God, like Daniel, asking God for his mercy, then because of Christ we can say, I am a new person. I am being made more like Jesus and one day God will make me perfect like him. Because God alone has put an end to sin. God alone has atoned for wickedness. And God alone is bringing everlasting righteousness. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you hear the prayers and confessions of your people. We thank you that out of your great mercy and for your glory and honor, you have made a new covenant through the blood of your son, Jesus. Thank you that we are a new people. 
Thank you that by your spirit you are making us to be more like your son. And thank you that you'll make us perfect when we live with you in glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.